From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on The Big Talk with the executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we really love to hear from you. Do you struggle with public speaking? Or do you feel like you've waited your whole life to be on the TED stage? They just don't know to put you there. Um, Do you want advice about preparing a talk or how to face a big audience? Um, Our guest today can give you advice on that and a whole lot more. Give us a call. We'd love to hear your voice in our conversation. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And if you're someplace where you can't call but you can write, we'd love to hear from you via email. So you can send us a note at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and you'll get Patty on the other side. So our guest today is the amazing Trisha Brooke. You may have heard about triple threats, those musical theater marvels who can dance and sing and act. Trisha's all that and more. An award-winning writer, director, producer, and choreographer, Trisha is currently serving as the executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square, where she has the extraordinary opportunity to help other people maximize their impact on the world. She also hosts this thing called The Big Talk, a podcast on iTunes, where she interviews people who talk for a living. And backed by popular demand this September, Trisha is hosting her second speaker salon, an invitation-only eight-week journey that will culminate in a performance at the Triad Theater in New York City, home of TEDx Lincoln Square. So there's a lot more that I could share about her, but I don't want to delay getting her here to talk with all of us. So with that, Trisha, welcome to Women at Work. Laura, thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to talk with you today. I am too. My only fear is we're going to run out of time. So let's get started. And I want to start at the beginning. I, you know, as the fellow Bachelor of Fine Arts person, I marvel at the fact that you started as a professionally trained dancer with a BFA in dance, um, where you're skilled in the art of nonverbal communication, yet you've become this powerful storyteller across so many mediums. How did you go from there to there? That's such a great question. Yes, I grew up dancing in Missouri. I wanted to be a dancer from a very young age, wanted to move to New York City and pursue my career as a ballerina. Uh, Went to college, got a BFA in dance, and still moved to New York City, but pursued a career in concert dance, in concert modern dance. Had a pretty solid career here, working with some great people like Lucinda Childs. I know, I saw that. I was amazed. Yeah, Lucinda was one one of my most uh, challenging, and I, I grew the most as a performer with her and in that work. It was very challenging. And that was the kind of work that actually had zero expression. It was completely minimalist. It was mm-hmm. all to Philip Glass. And so as a performer, I always found a character in, in the work that I did as a dancer. I always had a story that I was telling through physical movement. And when I moved into choreography, I realized that I could then write the physical script. I could write the choreography for the dancers who would be speaking the language that I would create for them. And then from there, I organically moved into directing where I used other people's words to express uh, a thought or a story. And honestly, I was 
impatient. I became impatient as a director to find really great work to direct, so I started writing my own work. <laughs> and that's how I became so comfortable writing, expressing story, understanding arc and through line and how to really own an audience through words. And as an artist, it was no different for me as, as, a, as a writer, director, or choreographer, or even a dancer. The most important thing that was the through line for all of those forms of art was getting the audience to feel something and to possibly be changed at the end of it. It's an amazing journey, and um, it's amazing to hear the thread that runs through it. So I want to go back to the beginning of that thread for a second because I was curious about this, that um, as a modern dancer where – so much of the language that we see as an audience is an abstract visual language. <laughs> you still found in that process this important, it was important for you, but it sounds like it then became something that became important for the audience to even in abstract movement or to translate it to the kind of work that lots of us do every day, even when we're doing something where we can't see the meaning clearly, to bring our own story to it. I personally needed to always have my own story or I couldn't connect to the material. And if I can't connect to the material, then you can't connect to the material. And it's my job as an artist, as a storyteller, as a speaker, as an actor, as a director to communicate clearly so that you understand what it is I'm sharing with you. So that's why I think it's super important no matter what you're doing to create your own story because you'll be able to communicate it in a way that we can hear it. Now, in that process of communicating stories, you said very specifically that you organically moved into directing. Tell me how that happened. Did you create an opportunity or were you presented with an opportunity? I was presented with an opportunity. And what many people may not know is that when if you want to be a good director, you need two things. You need great actors and you need to be organized. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you know this when you were offered this opportunity to direct? I did not. I got lucky because I'm really organized and I know how to run a room. And I got lucky with the actors who were on the project. So it was the perfect synergy of a, a, a real success for me as a first-time director. I got lucky with my actors, and I knew how to run a room. So those two things created a real success for me as a director, and then it taught me that I knew what I was doing. It gave me the confidence to do it again. Okay, I want to talk about the moment before you had the confidence. We know so many women, and it's actually a statistic that we quote all the time, that um, women will not step up to the plate when given a new opportunity if they don't feel 100% ready. In fact, some reports have said at six, unless we're we'll, at 60%, men will say yes, but women won't unless we're 100% ready. Now, you were an experienced dancer, an experienced choreographer, brand spanking new director. Where'd the confidence come from? Or were you winging it? I I winged pretty much everything that I did, and that's because I have tenacity, drive, and I'm fearless. What could go wrong that you can't fix? What don't you know <laughs> that you can't run to your computer and learn? So there's no reason for me as, as, a, as a woman, as an artist, to not say yes, because I have the opportunity in front of me, and all I have to do is run with it and teach myself or find the people who know more than me and ask them really quickly what the answer is. <laughs> Did you always just say yes, or was it something you learned to do as an adult? 
I always said yes. And the reason I always said yes is because I wasn't just handed opportunities. I was the dancer who had to work really hard. I wasn't the one who always got the job. I was the choreographer who had to go and find gigs. I wasn't just booked with an agent right away. So I said yes to everything and and then learned what to say no to the next time. But as I said yes to things that I didn't really have the skill set for yet, I did my homework, I did my research, and then I showed up, and as an organized person who can own a room and run the room, I succeeded, and that continuously gave me more confidence to continue saying yes to bigger jobs. So in a way, necessity was the mother of invention. Because you had to go out and find gigs and opportunities, you needed to say yes. Always. I, if I didn't have a door to walk through, I would build my own. <laughs> right. And it's funny how many people don't realize um, that that's an essential skill of being a working artist that clearly parlays into other kinds of work. It does, and I think it's a skill that can can be essential to somebody who works anywhere. Mm-hmm. If you're in a, in a job that you're not fulfilled with and you go to your superior and say, I really would love to do this, then all of a sudden you're giving yourself a new opportunity, which could, A, keep you happy, and B, keep you in your job. Right. Um, there was another part of what you said that really struck me, which was that, you looked at it like, what's the worst thing that can happen? So many of us, and I've experienced it. I've struggled with how I could learn to say yes, even when I don't know how to do something. Um, struggle with the fear of failing, not getting it right, not knowing what to do. How did you learn to not be afraid? How did you learn to feel safe? One of the first jobs I took in New York when I moved here at age 20 was a temp job. And I got booked right away. I went to NYU. They put me in this office that was huge that I was alone in, in front of a computer. And they said, we want you to create a database of all the students. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know what a database was. Computer is not my thing. So the whole day I spent trying to figure it out. And by the end of the day, I had accomplished nothing. And I went to them and I said, I'm really sorry. I just sat here for eight hours. Lunch was delicious, but you should call someone else for tomorrow. (laughs) How'd they respond? I didn't get called back to the temp agency. (laughs) But what I learned was my life wasn't over. Nobody got hurt. I was honest. And I gave it my best try. Absolutely. I also I'm curious because my experience having been trained in the arts and working in the arts for so long is that a big part you're making something from nothing and that there is a kind of regular process of trying without knowing how it's going to come out and doing that in front of other people. Yes, we get very used to failing in front of other people and Instead of using the word fail, it becomes rehearsal or previews or let's try something. Right, or or iterate. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So as you started directing, another thing that comes, and you talked about, you know, you had great actors and you're really well organized. But while that's key, there's also a sense of having a vision and being ready to emerge as a leader. How did you bring those skills the first time around? I have always had very strong opinions, and I have always also coupled that with the bigger picture. How can what we do together as collaborators also create a vision that the audience can be moved from? So I know 
really well how to create boundaries in my process while still considering everyone else's ideas. And I think that because I give everyone who I work with the opportunity to bring those ideas to the table and feel safe in the space that I create, we work together in a collaborative way, but they understand and they know that I'm in charge and that I'm going to, I'm, I'm um, the captain of the ship, and they feel safe knowing that. So ultimately, here's two things. If the show is terrible, it's my fault. <laughs> right. <laughs> no pressure. And if they have a safe space to play in, they feel respected, even if their ideas don't get used by the end of the day. Right. Um, by the way, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Trisha Brook, executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square and founder of the Speaker Salon. If you've got a question about something we're talking about, you want to share your own experience with learning to lead and direct and speak publicly, um, give us a call. We'd really love to hear from you. That's 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Trisha, I want to um, probe something and break it down a little bit. Um, when you talk about how to maintain your boundaries while listening to others and making this safe place, can you give us an example that makes it real to people who haven't had the opportunity to work on a creative team? Absolutely. If you're working on a new project, whether it's a scene or a new talk or you want to try out a new song, the 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 best way when an actor or a speaker says, um, what do you think of this? the best thing that I can do is say, let's try it. That way, they get to try it. it. The idea very well might be the best one in the room, and they feel heard. So let's try it opens up possibility to everyone and everything in the room. And then when you try it and it's great, implement it. When you try it and it's not so great, push it aside. Or when you try it and you're not sure, simply state you're not sure. So it keeps the machine moving forward. It keeps the story of the day moving forward. And that's why, what do you think of this? Let's try it. Keeps an open dialogue. When you're in that role and um, as a director whether or a producer, whether you're putting speakers on the stage, dancers on the stage, or you know, creating an event, um, there's the role that you have where if it stinks, it's your fault. But you also have a whole team that you're mobilizing. And you're giving feedback on creative output, people's ideas. How do you give criticism and create the right context so that you have the final word, but people, everyone's voices can contribute to that discourse? I think always we start with, we as the person on the other side of the table mm -hmm. starts with the positive. This was amazing. I loved how you did this. I'd like you to consider rethinking this section. Try that. That would be how I would get in there and have them bring their attention to something that may not be working. Because 99.9% .9 of the time, if I bring their attention to something that's not working and I ask them to investigate it, they find out it's not working and I don't have to tell them. <laughs> right. Right. But part of it is that it sounds like you that safe place includes bringing the positive along with the negative. And there must be some aspect of it so that you make sure that they're hearing your comments on their work and not on them as people. That's such a great difference. And I think that 
if we can remind ourselves that it's not about the person, it's about the work, then we actually get to move forward more quickly in the process. Now, it's a little different if an actor is playing a scene than if a speaker is writing a talk that is about their most important personal life story that's ever happened and that is more important than anyone else's in the entire world. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what's that difference? That difference is... I have to be even more gentle, um, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean soft hands. It means more gentle in a very um, direct way. Uh, for example, I love that you're talking about this idea in this way. However, it's too precious, and I know you don't want to come across like that. Okay. So it's helping them feel like you understand what they're trying to do, and you're helping them get where they want to go. Absolutely. And it's my job to understand what it is they're trying to do. It's my job as a director with an actor who understands how to play a scene. It's my job to give them a specific action so they have something to hold on to. And it's the same thing with speakers. If I understand what it is they want from the audience, I can help them get there because this is my skill, helping people tell stories in, with direct and clear intention and authenticity. When you started directing, you know, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility here. It's not just for the quality of the final production. You carry with you um, your team, their emotions, their stories, um, because they're going to help deliver that story at the end. When you look back at your first experience with this, what do you wish you knew as a leader? What mistakes were you making? I think the big mistakes that I made was not starting with how can I help you and going right to the why did you do this? <laughs> ah, so it wasn't even a – so it was the difference of exploring what their motivation was as opposing to just addressing the outcome. Absolutely. If I start with how can I help you with this situation, how can I help you make it to the theater on time, how can I help you be prepared when you come into the space? Rather than, why are you always late, and why don't you have your lines memorized? (laughs) Um, I know that one of the things that I see in working with young potential leaders, and it was something I had to learn, too, is the difference of getting people to go where you want them to go versus getting them where they want to go, and in more sophisticated contexts, making those two things the same thing. That's a tricky and excellent point. I believe as leaders, it's our responsibility to have limitless vision so that where they want to go is within where we want to take them. So everyone feels like they're collaborators, like they are equally as important in the final outcome. And I think also painting the picture of everyone who's on the team being leaders as well. How do you um, navigate it when someone's vision starts to go outside of the scope of your own capacious vision? I think one of the first things that I do is check in with myself and and do an ego check uh-huh. <laughs> um, for sure. And then I, I start to do that whole question and answer, what's the best um, – what's the best – thing that's happening right now? What's the best answer? What's the best idea? Because if we're looking for the global impact, it's not about me. 
So if somebody brings to the table the best idea and my vision was going to the right and this is the best idea and it happens to go to the left, I will consider what that means and maybe we can meet in the middle and then continue forward. I love how you talked about your own kind of ego check because I've learned that when my team suggests something and my first reaction is negative or it's like the big no automatically, I've learned not to let the no out of my mouth and to instead say, why am I so opposed? Why is it such a big no? And I often find that it's not because it's the wrong answer, because there's something ego-based in it. Most of the time, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> how, how long into your career did you start to get a grip on this? Was it something that came easily to you when you were young, or is it something that came with age? Because, you know, I'm not young anymore, and I'm still learning these things. I was so judgmental and no-based as a dancer. <laughs> I, I, that's not completely true because I would say yes to anything a choreographer asked me to do. But I was also very judgmental of other dance companies because the one that I was in was the best. Mm -hmm. It was just ridiculous and completely um, non-inclusive. And what I learned was that there's room for all of us. There's room for all creative voices. And I had to actually expand my reach as an artist to fully understand that. And now that I'm working with so many speakers and there's so few ideas in the world that are new, I've realized that I have this opportunity to actually help people express themselves fully and uniquely, even if the ideas are the same. So my, my no to somebody saying, can I do a talk about leadership means let's go a little deeper because a lot of people do talks about leadership. It, it it also makes me think that there is something that we ha get when we're young or when we don't feel powerful by saying no. Mm -hmm. And that it sounds like you're discovering that the greater power actually comes from saying yes and figuring out how to make it work. For sure. Without question. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Trisha Brooke. She's the executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square and founder of the Speaker Salon, not to mention an accomplished writer, director, producer, and choreographer. Um, if you are working on a presentation, are you getting ready to give a big and important talk? You want some advice from Trisha? She's the woman to talk to, and you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844 942-7866. So, Tricia, another part of not just these art forms, but certainly the kind of work that you're doing now is collaboration, where you move in and out of being, are you a member of the troop? Are you the leader? Are you all a troop together? How do you navigate this? How did you learn to collaborate at different places in the hierarchy? Because I worked with people who were smarter and more experienced with me, and I absorbed everything I could about the scenario. I absorbed and observed everything I could see around me. When I was on set for The Sopranos, I would sit next to the director and say, how did you set up this scene? Why are you shooting it like this? I would ask as many questions as possible, and I would just observe what worked and what didn't. I, As a, as a dancer, I was constantly in rooms with directors and choreographers who were mean and who would yell mm -hmm. and I would watch the dancers who responded what way and who responded another and I made a promise to myself that when I was the leader the person who was on the other side of the table making these decisions for people's careers I would treat them 
with equality and collaboration. And I mean that even if they're in a room auditioning with me, if they walk into a room and they're spending their time rehearsing, preparing to come in and audition, I greet them by name, I make eye contact, I listen to their entire song, and I thank them. That's the exchange, that's the collaboration that I chose to always incorporate based on my experience. Some of that sounds like good manners, and some of it sounds (laughs) like respect. Um, I just want to confirm, because we see a lot of it. You know, I had teachers who screamed. I had one beloved teacher who took a four-inch paintbrush, Mm. covered it with white paint, and painted over a whole day's work. Uh I still love her, and I learned a lot, but it was very painful. Um, Do you see any place for those kinds of painful moments, or do you find that with kindness and respect you can still create great work? I do not believe suffering creates great art or great artists. I don't believe um, a struggling artist is sexy. I think that (laughs) you can have money and be an artist. I think you can be an artist and not have personal experience with pain. It is acting. (laughs) So I think, and for me, I've created a tribe of technicians, actors, producers, sound engineers, camera operators, directors of photography who continue to say yes when I ask them to do projects. And I know it's because I treat them with respect and kindness. And I give them their, it's their lane. I don't get in it when we're working together. That's really interesting in the boundaries. And also to note that, well, you know, we start talking about this from our experience in the arts. When you're producing TEDx at Lincoln Center or any production, the work you've done on Showtime or for ABC, these are highly professional endeavors. And you don't need to be a jerk to make something professional work well. You don't. And I think that there's no time for it, first of all. People have to get the shot and move on. So if you are creating a problem or you are part of any sort of drama, you will be replaced immediately. Uh, But there's also a sense that you you can get what you want from an actor by simply being kind. Um, Seth Barish is a fantastic actor and um, director and acting coach. He runs the Barrow Group in New York City. It's a terrific Mm -hmm. school. And his approach to teaching directing is ask for what you want by doing what you want. So if he wants an actor to speak more quietly or more withdrawn, he'll go up to them and he'll talk to them like So you can model good behavior. You don't have to scream and abuse people into good behavior. Absolutely right. By the way, we need to take a break, but stay with us. Trisha is here for the hour, and we're also happy to take your calls at 1-844-WHARTON. So give us a ring, 1-844-942-7866. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Trisha Brooke founder and executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square and an award-winning 
director and writer for theater, film, and television. She's the founder of Speaker Salon and does a whole bunch of other things that we don't even have time to list. Um, if you want to join the conversation, we'd really love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And give us a call and tell us, how are you navigating getting up there on stage and giving talks? Are, are, do you have stage fright? Are you just so excited to share your ideas? And how can Trisha help you make them even better? Give us a ring. That's one 844 So with that, Trisha, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you, Laura. So when I was doing research on you and your work and all the cool things you do with TEDx, um, I saw a little note that was talking about the difference between a keynote versus a TED Talk. What's the difference? I love answering this question. A keynote is really a teaching tool. It's a 45 to 60 minute talk where you introduce the ideas, you you then go through the process of the ideas, and then there's a very clear call to action, which is either buy my book, um, donate money, um, join my organization. A TEDx is a very special beast. It is a gift, not an ask. It's an idea, uh-huh. not an issue. And at the end of it, you want the audience to adopt your idea as their own. Okay. So there are two important things here. It's a gift, not an ask. So you're sharing a story or a message or an idea with the audience that's supposed to enrich them, not to give you something or make them do something. Yes, it's an idea worth spreading. So if this idea that you are gifting the audience has the kind of impact that you want, they are going to not only adopt their idea as their own, but they're going to share this idea with other people and it's going to be spread. Thus, ideas worth spreading. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with how did you get to be in charge of this? A few years ago, a friend of mine, Petra Kolber, who is a speaker and an author, um, she also was a fan of my work. She came to all my shows. She said, I just got asked to do TEDx Syracuse, and I need help. Would you help me? And I thought, of course, it's just like any one-woman show. We'll do script analysis, we'll do direction, and you'll be good to go. And that's how I approached it. And it was really fun, and it was really inspiring. It's all about um, happiness. And we did this rehearsal we did this she did her TEDx it was super successful and that's as far as I know that would be it so I want to take half a step back um TEDx versus TED how do these how do the TEDx's work um how are they organized how can people get involved with them in order to be a TEDx organizer, you have to apply. So after Petra and I worked together, she planted the seed of you should really do this. So I decided I would start working with speakers. All of a sudden, they had these incredible speakers and no place to put them. And as the person who produces theater, the next obvious step was to become a TEDx organizer. So I applied for my license. It was very difficult, challenging process in that they ask you a lot of intense questions. They don't just give TEDx or, uh, licenses to anybody. You have. What to... were the kind of questions that you got? What did you have to demonstrate and know? I had to first choose a name that no one else had chosen. It had to be directly related to the location and the community. I had to then make up ideas and talks that potential speakers would give on my stage and why it was related to my theme. Oh, so that's coming back to that limitless vision of yours. You had to have a big picture for this. I did, and I knew that I wanted the theme to be risk-takers and change-makers because that's how I was approaching this new career as a as a speaking coach and as somebody who directs TEDx speakers. 
So that was how I became the organizer and the executive producer of my own event. And then what something that I, I'm going to segue into, how does one become a TEDx speaker? There are tons of organizers and events all over the world and all over the country that you can apply to. Something that I try to do is pull back the curtain on how scary we are. There's such a mystery around TEDx and TED and TEDx organizers and how do we talk to them and how do we get on their stages. All you have to do is reach out. Yes, there are some applications, but if you emailed me and said, I want to do TEDx Lincoln Square, what do I do? First, I would say, what's the idea? Because that's where I lead from. If your idea turns me on, I'm going to continue having a conversation with you, and then I'm going to get to know you as a person because I spend nine months with these people. And if I don't like them and they're difficult and they can't email me when they say they're going to and they can't follow up, they're not going to be somebody that I want to spend nine months with. So we get to know you, and it's equally as important for speakers to vet us because TEDx is an independently organized event under the TED umbrella. They do give out licenses. This is free. We are not allowed to make any money, and we do not pay for the license. However, not all first-time organizers know how to deal with sound Mm -hmm. and lighting. So if you spend six months or nine months preparing your TEDx and the sound is bad, and that thing goes up onto the YouTube channel and you're embarrassed, what a shame. So vet your organizers. Make sure that you're not going to walk into the event and it's going to be a closet with a light bulb overhead. (laughs) Make sure that people who've done the events in the past say good things about it, that the organizers are organized and that they showed up on time and that they, they delivered what they said they would and that they give you support. It's scary doing this. And the reason it's scary is because you have an opportunity to potentially have a wide reach. And so if your idea were spreading, is that important to you? And it could potentially have a really wide reach and global impact, you want to make sure that you're going to be proud of the product afterwards. And that's up to us. That's on us. Right. It's a production value issue. And it's interesting because, you know, part of the way that TED plays out is, you know, so many of us are now junkies for TED and TEDx Mm -hmm. talks. We consume them all the time online. But it's very clear that this is presented like a speaker at a conference. Um, But I think the better metaphor is that it's a piece of theater. Well, for me, it is. I consider my show, my event, Theatrical Academia. So I love I that. It, okay. Re- thank you. I find it really exciting when a speaker chooses to see through the lens or to use the point of view that's not just a lecture. You want to get us excited. You want to get us to stay. And you want to blow our minds at the end. And part of this is really thinking about the theatrical components of it then. I think, yes, I for my for my event, I not only start and lead with the ideas, but then I think about the audience. The, the, the audience is, is equally as important as a community to me as the community I set up with my TEDx speakers. And I do that purposefully because I want everyone to feel like they're sharing an experience. And that's what theater is all about. So I always have 
a host who is either uh, a stand-up comedian or some sort of inspiring motivational person. I always have Broadway performers sing. There's always a component of music. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Last year I had a magician because the theme was looking beyond and I wanted to get everybody looking outside of their minds. What marvelous warm-ups. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel like my show is about entertaining and inspiring and educating. So, and you can see these pieces coming together. Why, somebody once said to me, your career makes perfect sense when you look at it retroactively. <laughs> um, and that your understanding of how to mount a production, the role of every person in it, the role of sound, um, that these are all clearly tools that you're bringing to play as well as a, a large vision for what the audience experience is like. Yeah, and my vision goes beyond just the theater. It goes into the the world. My my job now with whatever piece of content I'm creating as an artist is to make a difference in the world and to help people who are do- making a difference in the world share that story from the big stage or the big screen. So one of the things that um, struck me, I was actually watching a documentary on Robin Williams, and Great. he was, um, and it, there was a little excerpt where they showed his performance at the Metropolitan Opera House. And it was, the camera was overhead, and it was the first time I grasped how enormous the stage was mm-hmm. and how physical he needed to be to hold that enormous stage. Now, this is a Juilliard-trained actor. How do you get inspired and inspiring people who have brilliant ideas to share to take up that stage, to hold it, to deal with the physical aspect of it? Well, as... Somebody who's auditioned a lot of people and interviewed a lot of people, I get a sense if they're going to be able to do that. And if they're not, and I still believe in them, which is a lot of what I do, Mm -hmm. I like to work with the underdog, I will shepherd them into that space. And I will comfort them, and I will give them confidence, and I will guide them, and I will direct them, and I will watch them become the speaker they are meant to be. So it reinforces the idea that if somebody's open to learning and they have good instruction, you can get them there. I can. And a perfect example is the Rabbi El Shannon, who did TEDx Lincoln Square 2017, he started courting me. And I say that mindfully. He started courting me about a year before we even opened applications. He emailed me and said, I'm really interested in your event. I would like to talk about when I met my wife. And I said... No, not that, but we have to keep talking. (laughs) So we had this conversation over a period of eight months, and I just really became fond of him. So he, he, he applied. I gave him feedback. He made the adjustments. He sent in the video. He was very nervous. But I knew that he wanted it badly enough to allow me to work with him and to help him. And so I, I picked him. I put him on my stage. And at the first rehearsal that we had, because I give all of my speakers free direction, free rehearsal, he showed up and it was a disaster. (laughs) And I said, okay, the event is in three weeks. Here's what I need you to do. I want you to do this, 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 and this, and I want you to send me a video every other day, and I'm going to give you feedback. And he did it. Really? walked out onto that stage and owned us. And it was so powerful and so beautiful. And when I mean owned, there was not a control behind it. It was a 
confidence that gave us permission to say yes to everything he was bringing to our attention. That is just an amazing story. Um, and, and to see the power of that process of growth. By the way, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking to Trisha Brooke, executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square and founder of The Speaker Salon. If you'd like to join in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you from 81-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And before I ask Trisha what the rabbi's topic eventually became, I'd love to know what's your idea for a good to- TED Talk. Give us a call and let's see what Trisha thinks. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So, Trisha, what did the rabbi eventually speak on? Political polarization. Wow. That's a long distance from how I met my wife. It was. And it was it was a little bit of a nudge because I knew, and you're not supposed to talk about politics from a TED stage. It's just a no-no. You're not supposed to read from cards and talk about politics. So I knew that if I gave him the challenge of talking about politics, he would find a way in that was universal and inclusive, and he did. So that's really interesting. So you picked the thing that he wanted to go to, but tempered it with his very qualities as a rabbi. Yeah, I did. And in and as you were working with him because there are lots of components of this from you know from what I can see and also the way that you're describing it. Um how your physical presence on the stage, the words that you're sharing, the ideas that you have. Was there any particular pieces of advice that you were giving him? Stillness is powerful. You don't have to keep moving. Mm. And trust the words. That's that's important stuff. So I want to ask about those words for a minute. So, you know, one of the things that I think about all the time, even with the radio shows, what's the difference of when we just talk, um, when we talk from notes and we've prepped ideas, and when we're scripted? And like you said, a TED Talk or a TEDx Talk, it's a performance. You're not reading from cards and you're not reading off of a slide deck. How do you balance the development of text and how it's delivered so that when are you wrapped up in the words and when are you off the page? I think as communicators and whether or not that's a speaker or a talk show host or an actor, ultimately we are all communicators. Therefore, it's our job to be able to sound as though we are just having a conversation at all times. So if you're dealing with a script, you have to know that script inside and out so you can let go of the words and have a conversation. If you're dealing with bullet points, you need to understand how you're going to go from transition A to transition B so that it sounds like you're having a conversation. You and I are having a conversation, and I believe that it sounds like that, but we're also masterful communicators and getting our story across. Well, thank you for including me in that, but uh, you certainly are. Um, one of the things you talked about before, you mentioned just briefly, is that it's a nine-month process. Now, I plan lots of conferences, so I can totally understand from the moment of we're putting on an event until we're having cocktails after the event that nine months is barely enough time sometimes. But what is the process, the nine-month process for these people who are working with you? How does it play out over that time? It start, I give everybody this time because I want them to be able to go back and make adjustments if they send me an application and they're close but not right on. So that's why I give this process nine months. Many TEDx organizers will give you six weeks, and that includes the application process. Wow, that's quick. It is quick. So if you know you can't write fast and that you are not good at memorizing, you may want to consider a different event. Ah, that's good advice. So 
we start the application process in September. So when a speaker decides to apply to TEDx Lincoln Square, they go to the website, they fill out the online application, and I don't even look at them until the middle of October. Then come October, I look at them and I give some notes to people that I'm interested in and, and I make my decisions. And then we do a callback. I call it a callback. They, I ask for video submission of that idea. You know, we, in, we incorporate video submission to the first application as well, but it can be about anything. I love, by the way, I love that you're calling it a callback and bringing that theater context to it. <laughs> it preps them as well because we do a tech rehearsal and we do a dress rehearsal. So they need to understand from the beginning that this process is going to be run just like the theater. So we ask them to send in a video submission three minutes or less of their idea. And for those listening, if you submit a video and the first minute is of you explaining why you chose this, you have not listened to the, <laughs> to the guidelines. And it tells us that you might be difficult to work with. So just know that. And so, what are those guidelines? Three minutes. Get into the idea. We're not asking you to give us a bio. We already have your bio. Just talk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Start with something juicy. Yeah. So after we've got the video submissions, then we spend the next few weeks going through all of those. Come the middle of December, we announce right before the holidays. I make my announcement after I send every applicant a voice memo that they weren't chosen. It's not a it's not a one page email. It is a personal voice memo. And the reason that this is important to me is because I've heard no my entire life. I've auditioned for many, many, many things. And there is nothing wrong with telling somebody they didn't get it personally. But it's it's doing it with the same kindness and respect that you were talking about earlier. Yes. And it's important to me because that sort of ripple effect will have uh, will will make a difference in in people's lives that that the speakers will touch, even if they didn't get chosen. Something tell me more do, about that. Well, if they're treated a certain way and it surprises them, they're going to tell that story to somebody, mm-hmm. and then that person might behave that way. And once again, in the same way that you learn to direct by having it modeled for you, this is modeling a way to give negative feedback in a positive way. For sure. For sure. Something else that I do is I give the opportunity to any of the speakers that I do not choose to get feedback on why. So the, the you weren't chosen is a very personal, I'm sorry, you weren't chosen. And if you want to know why, you can email me and we'll hop on a phone call. And only seven people took me up on that last really? year, which I was really surprised about. I think more people will now. But I think it's super important. And this is something that I hear from people who apply to TEDx events all over the world. They apply multiple times, mm-hmm. and they never hear back, and they never know why. Jeffrey Shaw, who did my event last year, my event for him was number 13. Oh, my God. See, this is reinforcing a couple of things for me. One is when I hear stories of people who got their books published, got their papers in a journal, um, made it onto the stage, got the big gig, um, part of it was a tenacity. They mm-hmm. didn't give up. They tried over and over and over again. They didn't write something, submit it once, Up, oh, I didn't get it, and it's done. And so recognizing that um, with all that effort going into it, to make it a learning experience is a gift on your part. 
But on their part, if it's almost foolish not to realize that if you've opened that door to say, I'm happy to tell you how to do this better, be brave and reach out, go through the door. And believe me when I offer that. (laughs) (laughs) That it's not just something you're saying to be nice. Right. And so it's a sincere offer. Yeah, absolutely. But it can be. about being sincere. And it's one of those things that we've talked about, whether it's, you know, the arts are one intense example of it. But this happens at the workplace every day, that we may not get the things we try for. We may not do well at things. But the only way we're really going to get better if we learn what we did wrong and where there are opportunities to improve. And going back to what you said earlier, Laura, it's not about you. So if you can think about it in terms of that and go ask for feedback, everybody wins. Right. And also, I'd say another piece of the Trisha brilliance to kind of try and internalize is when you said that first time out, like, my life will not come to an end if I get this wrong. (laughs) It may sting. It may be embarrassing. I may be disappointed. I may lose opportunities I want, but you're not going to die from it. Right. And so it's worth trying. Okay. So we're at the point in nine months where there's actually been a whole process just to get onto the roster. Right. So once we choose our 10 or our 12, and I limited to 12, but last year I I had two favorites, so I I added two from the year before, so it was 12. Then we start the process of, okay, here are your deadlines. Here's when I need a blueprint. Here's when I need a first draft. Here's when I need your bio. Here's when I need your photograph. Here's when I need all of your social media. Here is the link to this. Here's the link to I give them every possible tool that they could need. And then sometimes there's one that needs a little bit more support and a reminder. Your bio's due by 5 o'clock today. I look forward to receiving it from you. (laughs) (laughs) I have to confess, having been on the other side of speaking at conferences, I really do appreciate, even though I'm like a little like, oh, no, not another email. But the nudging is important. It does help. It does. And what I learned from my speakers from last year from direct feedback is that that kind of support really made them feel less nervous because they knew I was leading them. Mm -hmm. And you were creating an infrastructure where they would be presented, polished, um, well represented. Right. I answered every question for them. So all they had to focus on was the talk. And so... In between that time and when they get on stage, do you see them again before it happens? I do. I see them once, whether if they're from out of town, we do a virtual rehearsal. If they're in town, I rehearse with them in person. So I get to see all of the speakers do their talk. And the other part that I, the reason that I do that is because I time them. You, you can't trust that somebody understands, no, it's really just 15 minutes, not 18, because the, the machine is well-oiled. I've got a very specific time thing going on with mm-hmm. my event. So I time them. I give them feedback. I give them notes. I give them direction, and then they can take that and go home and, and do their thing. But before I even see them, I'm giving them feedback on their structure, on their script. I ask them to consider this, and that kind of sets them up to be ready for the actual rehearsal with me. So part of what this is um, helping me see, and and I'm going to try and reflect this back because if I'm wrong, I really need you to correct me, is that what what people, if you've got a big idea, 
the kind of thing that's going to impact other people's lives that you want to share. That's really the most important thing because you're creating a whole ecosystem to help bring that idea to life and to help that person deliver it well. For sure. I am all about creating the possibility for your idea to make change in the world. It's an enormous thing. Okay, so we just have a minute, like a little more than a minute left, but I want to know more about the Speaker Salon. The Speaker Salon was another I have no idea what I'm doing moment. <laughs> I'm going to try it out, see if it works, and it blew my mind. We had 18 speakers show up for six weeks. It was once a week, and what we did was create sort of like a open mic night. They would get up and work on content. They would work on delivery. They would ask questions. Do you like this ending better or this ending? And the group, the people in the salon were the audience. So they'd get in-time feedback and they'd get in-time physical response from us about what worked and what didn't. And the observation of the speakers as a group taught us what not to do, feel what works, and it created an environment and a community that allowed everybody to work through their nerves. Because when you go up onto the stage and your tribe is clapping and cheering for you, <laughs> you feel like you can do it. it. It reminds me of playwrights' workshops, but it's for speakers. That's exactly right. And what I decided to do with the next salon was turn it into, like, actor showcases for agents. So at the end of the next salon, I've got speakers' bureaus from New York City coming to the showcase, and I'm presenting my speakers to those bureaus. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so for any of us who want to um, get audition for, get involved in the speaker salon, very quickly, where can they turn? You can find everything you need at TrishaBrook.com. Trisha, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's really been illuminating and a delight. Same here, Laura. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. A special thanks to my guest today, Trisha Brooke. And, of course, a special thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Jeffrey Simmons. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody, and think about your big ideas. Bye-bye. Thank you.